2: Welcome back to the National Football Show. Dan In this hour, we'll talk to Brad Sham, the legendary voice of the Dallas Cowboys. Dallas do enough in the offseason to fix that defense. And I got to tell you, man, I've become more of a fan of Dak Prescott. Now, when I say fan, I'm not suggesting to you that Dak Prescott is a quarterback who's a top 10 guy. He's probably right there, though, at 10, 11, somewhere in there, okay? I do think he's a very talented kid. But I also happen to think, and I said this a couple days ago to you about how you represent yourself in this league and how you act like a professional. The thing that has impressed me the most about Prescott, if I had a young quarterback, I would put a game plan together on how you're to act. There'd be chapters like this. On the field, off the field. On the field, how you lead. Off the field, how you represent. Dak represents the number one brand in the world in sports. Think of that for a minute. We're not talking about the Jacksonville Jaguars here. Okay? Nobody – look, Trevor Lawrence is bigger than that brand. Jacksonville Jaguars – Now, I I will give you this. The only reason that we're talking more Jacksonville Jaguars is because of three names, not because of the franchise. We'd always be talking Dallas Cowboys. Trevor Lawrence, Tim Tebow, and Urban Meyer are the only reason that we're talking about Jacksonville football here on June 17th, right? No other reason for that. Nobody talks about that franchise. It's not like there's legendary history with that franchise. They've had sporadic years where they've been great. But when you're talking Cowboys, I mean, you know the names of the teams and you know the history of the team. You know what the team means to the National Football League. Every time that team comes to your town, you're going to have sellouts. Every time that team has a national game, you're going to have gigantic ratings, which means great revenue. They have the two R's wrapped up, and that's why they wear the heavyweight championship belt ratings and revenue. You know, I say this to you the Cowboys may not have won like a lot of championships in the last 26 years. But you know what they have won? They've won the ratings and revenue belt, and they've won the money belt. They're like Money Mayweather. They kind of hang around that 500 mark, you know? But when it comes to ratings and revenue and the amount of money and the amount of exposure and how people look at that and perceive that team, think of this for a minute. Like I said, in nearly 30 years, they haven't won a title. But they're the richest franchise in the world, not just America anymore. It's the most valued franchise on the planet. Jerry bought the team for $150 million. Think of this for a second. Okay? 1989, I was there in the building. I'll tell you a quick story here about this whole thing about Jones and this team. And Brad Cham knows this too. He was there for the whole thing. I was in Dallas. I got to Dallas in November of the year previous, 88. And Coach Landry had brought me in. And I wasn't active, but I was there in 88 with the Dallas Cowboys. It was Coach's last couple games, last couple months of his regular season. And so we get there, and Bum Bright, who owned the team at the time, Tech Schramm was in the building, um, Gil Brandt was still there, and obviously Coach Landry. And I have great respect for Coach Landry. Wait till I tell you the story. It's the craziest thing you've ever heard. And, and, and by the way – it's one of the most signature moments in my professional career. So we get there, and we're like, you know, really respect Coach Landry. He had played with my relative, Andy Robostelli, in New York, and he had coached with Andy there. And all of a sudden, that calendar turned. Bum bright had put the team up each other. You know, Donald Trump tried buying the Cowboys. And when he saw the price tag of $154 million, do you know what he said? Cowboys are overpriced. Never going to pay for that. Good move, Donald. Right? Said it was, no, overvalue. So what does Jerry do? Jerry ponies up every single cent he has. Remember something about Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones didn't make his money on oil wells. Jerry Jones couldn't find an oil well if it hit him in the face. So you know what he ended up doing? He was putting holes in West Texas more than anybody in the history of prospecting. So he ended up almost going broke. So you know what he did with all them oil wells? He turned his company into a maintenance and a parts company for oil well manufacturers. And he made his money that way selling the oil rigs to people that were actually digging for oil and drilling for oil. So he had saved up all this money, buys the Cowboys. million, every cent he had. I'm in Dallas at the time. I get a call from Jimmy Johnson. Dan, I uh, know I'm I'm at this uh, Mexican restaurant here in Dallas. I go, what are you doing in town, coach? He goes, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. I knew immediately something was up because there were rumblings going around the building that the team had been sold. This is the craziest part here. We get this phone call from the secretaries in Coach Landry's office. All players are to report to the team meeting room. And we all walk in. Get this, watch this. I had a two tall Jones next to me, Randy White, Danny White, Tom Rafferty, all these legendary Dallas Cowboy guys that had been there forever. Coach Landry walks in the room. This story is one of the most painful stories in my time in pro sports. Coach Landry walks into the room. Gil Brandt's here. Tech Schram's here. Coach Landry starts bawling. You couldn't hear a pin drop. You couldn't hear it. And by the way, just for a secret, my wife likes Jimmy. She loves, or did, Coach Landry. <laughs> loves Coach Landry. I said to I. I remember doing this under my breath. Oh, my God. They fired him. And everybody looked over at me. We're sitting there. Landry's in tears. I thought of Coach Lombardi. I thought of all the people that he had ever coached against. I thought about all those legendary games that he had had against the Giants and the Eagles and the Super Bowls with the Steelers, how important he was. And he's in f- just uncontrollable tears. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, they fired him. I couldn't believe He goes, guys, uncontrollably crying. It's been a tremendous 29 years. I love every one of you in here. I'm sorry it had to end like this. And they fired me. They didn't give me a chance to dig us out of the hole. Remember something too. They had already made it clear they were drafting Troy Aikman. Troy Aikman was not a Jimmy Johnson decision. That decision had already been made and they carried it over. And we're going to draft Troy Aikman anyway. There was a Cotton Bowl that year in January, and Tex and those guys were still in the building. And it it was very clear. They kept Gil on for a little more, but Coach Landry's crying. And he just says, guys, if you want to stop by the office, which we all did, of course. And he walked out the building just drenched in tears. Everybody looked over at me like this because the name that had been mentioned had been the fact that Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones were teammates at Arkansas and were best friends at the time and it's true they were best friends and Jimmy the night before said I'll see you tomorrow sure enough they looked over at me she goes he they go like this your boy's going to be the head coach within hours Jimmy Johnson was named head football coach of the Dallas Cowboys and guys in that room started asking me um What's he like? I said, hey, I'll tell you flat out, 90% of the people in this room won't be in this room, but he started next year, maybe this year, but started next year. That includes me. It just won't happen. He's just not that guy. Has nothing to do whether he likes you or not. He don't like veteran guys. He likes young guys. Remember when the Cowboys won those Super Bowls back in the day? They were the youngest football team. Jimmy Johnson was on this show. And you can go back and watch that interview. Jimmy said they were the youngest football team in the NFL when they won them Super Bowls. Youngest team in the league and the deepest team in the league because the way he built that team. And I said this, that guy is all about winning. It's got nothing to do with who he loves, who he likes. And boy, I'll tell you what, man, when he walked in that building, there wasn't a person in that building that didn't know what was coming except for me. This guy fired everybody that from the jocks to the socks. People in the training room, people in the equipment room, everybody was canned except like three or four people. You know what Jimmy told me years later? You know those three or four people are still in Dallas. You know why? They were grateful that they have their jobs. They fired everyone. Nobody was safe. Randy White retired. Um, Rafferty went through camp, but they blew him out. They fired everyone, man. It was something to see. And when he ended up going 1-15 in that first year, they'll never, and I go like this, if you think that guy's not going to win, you're high, man. You're high. I was there for it. I was there at the first training camp at Thousand Oaks. I have posted the letter numerous times. Coach Johnson handwritten to me. Hey, I'll see you at training camp at Thousand Oaks. I knew what was coming. And to know that, I can't wait to talk to Brad about this, to know that Jimmy is going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame this coming summer. He's already in, but he's going to be officially um, given his speech this summer. All oh, goes back to that. You want to hear something even more remote what's even more remarkable about this whole journey. You know, Jerry Jones still refuses to this day to put Jimmy Johnson in the Cowboy ring of honor. Talk about competitive. Talk about two guys that had egos when it came to building that franchise. You know, I say this to people all the time. Working for Jerry, and we've had Stephen Jones on, the CEO of the Cowboys. I love the Jones family. I just admire everything they are. I just really do. Can you imagine if they would have been able? You see, what those guys were, those guys were what the Patriots became. Because the Patriots kept it together because you had the owner as the buffer. What Jerry's dynamic is, is that he's the owner slash GM, which means he believes he knows how to build a team. And you have the coach. That's why they've never been able to find that dynamic. Jerry, how about this? When your owner is the face of your franchise, don't you think that's a problem? I mean, the face of the franchise in Pittsburgh is Roethlisberger still to this day. The face of your franchise, and and when you don't have one, that means you don't have a lot of star players on your team now. The face of the franchise in Philly was Wentz. The face of the franchise in Green Bay is Rodgers. Seattle, it's Wilson. When your owner is the face of the franchise, you can't run your team from the front office and from the owner's box. That's been the major contention for me and why the Cowboys don't win. Can you imagine if they were able to keep that thing going and what Jimmy and how Jimmy went about evaluating a talent finding guys in ladder rounds. You know, Larry Allen, that unbelievable offensive lineman that they found at Humble State, you know, he was a 12th rounder. And I tell you this, there's not a better offensive lineman that's ever played than Larry Allen. Larry Allen's the greatest offensive lineman I've ever seen. I've never seen anything like it. 700-pound bench presser, ran four sevens, Dude, the guy was a stupid great. Just to circle back, though, that's one of my biggest stories of all time, watching a legendary Hall of Fame coach broken down to tears because of something that he loved when Coach Landry got fired. Man. And in that whole process, you know, when you're a cowboy, you know, you're, you, 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 You know some of the particular things. You know it's always crazy when I hear Skip Bayless talking about how he's a cowboy insider. No, he's not. You know, you know why do you think Troy Aikman doesn't go on that show Undisputed? Because Skip Bayless wrote a book with innuendo that Troy Aikman was gay. It was the furthest thing from the truth. Like he made some innuendo up, sold the book, asked people. Aikman hates him to this day. I'll give you some cowboy dirt here, okay? I'll give you the cowboy dirt. That guy wrote a book, Skip Bayless, when he worked in Dallas at one of the newspapers, and he wrote a book suggesting that Troy was gay when everyone in the cowboy organization knew what he was doing. You know what it was? He was dating one of the cowboy cheerleaders. And cowboy cheerleaders are off limits to the players. You can't date them. So nobody saw Troy with a woman ever in public for like like the first three or four years when he was in Dallas. But this guy Bayless wrote a story on it, and then he ended up writing a book on it. And so do you ever wonder why Troy Aikman, every time uh, they bring up Bayless's name to him, he goes off on it. Says the guy's the biggest lowlife he's ever met in his entire media life. That's Cowboy Insider? Do you had insights into... If you, how do you not know that story then that Troy was dating the cowboy cheerleader? I won't name her name because Troy's got a wife now and all this and that, but that's what the story was. We all knew it and it was told to us by Rich Dalrymple and everybody in the PR department not to say anything, even though people were publicly putting the innuendo out there, including Bayless, throwing it out there in the newspapers. By the way, you can Google this. Troy will has gone public with this. I've tweeted about it. Yeah, so he's an insider? Where? Now, you know, it's one thing, uh, because nowadays, you know, you don't have to be truthful. You could just out and out lie. It doesn't really matter. You know, you could say things when it comes to the media because it's not important anymore. You know, if you're factual, it's all about clicks now. Yeah, so when he threw that out, I was like this. We're all like, and, and Troy and I have talked about this. We're trying to get Troy on the show. Troy doesn't like to do much of this kind of stuff, but we're trying to get him on. I love Aikman. Drakeman's one of the great leaders and one of the great people I've ever been around. The fact that we broke his leg when he was at Oklahoma, I always tell him this, guys. If it wasn't for us breaking his leg at Oklahoma, uh, he'd be some fifth-round guy (laughs) out out of Oklahoma. He ends up transferring to UCLA. Then he becomes the number one overall pick, and the rest is history. And he ends up going on and winning those three championships and puts himself a gold jacket on. And, yeah, so he's had quite a journey himself. I tell you this all the time. We had Brad Johnson on with us yesterday. He won a Super Bowl. And how Brad had one of those legendary journeys as well. All right, speaking of that, speaking of Cowboys, it's like Cowboy Hour here, we will talk to the legend himself, Brad Sham. I believe Brad's going on his 35th or 40th year covering the Dallas Cowboys as the play-by-play man. We'll do that next. You keep it right here on the National Football Show.
3: I get scared sometimes. Of a lot of things.
2: Joining in.
3: Decisions. The dark. The dark. But I once heard someone say. But as I always say. It's okay to be afraid. As long as you face the fear and keep moving forward.
4: Wherever you are in life, count on the name trusted in insurance for over 80 years. Independence Blue Cross.
3: There's strong, and then there's Army strong. Try it on at GoArmy.com.
2: Welcome back to the National Football Show with your boy Dan Cilio. We're going to catch up with our friend Barrett Sham, the... Legendary voice of the Dallas Cowboys here in a minute. You know, I was proud of the fact that I started Jimmy Johnson's very first game against the Chargers in San Diego. I started at left defensive tackle for him. And I won't lie to you, man. Putting that star on, it's pretty cool. Okay? Wearing that helmet, you know, that whole gear being part of that franchise was really cool. All right, so... We'll talk to Brad here in a second and obviously we'll get his thoughts on how he sees the Cowboys and a lot of words going around camp right now. A lot of optimism too going around. Stephen Jones, who was on with us, the CEO of the Cowboys a couple uh, days ago, was talking about how, you know, the optimism is so high in Dallas right now and the energy it's back in the building, it seems. So we're really looking forward to talking to Brad and getting his sense of what he sees since he's been around the team the last couple days. Also, I want to throw this out before we bring Brad on here. You know, the Cleveland Browns now have a decision to make this coming up season here. They picked up the option year, the fifth option year on Baker Mayfield's contract, his rookie contract, which means he'll make $18.5 million. You know, I was asked a question the other day by the NFL Network guys: Sills, do you believe that he is a franchise guy? I said this to you. I thought his play picked up after week eight last year, or more so than anything, I could pinpoint it when Odell Beckham was no longer in that offensive huddle. I thought Kevin Stefanski, the offensive genius slash head coach of the Browns, I thought that they figured out their secret sauce in Cleveland on how to win ball games. We saw what they did against Dallas, even. They ran for over 300 football yards on the ground against the Cowboys because that's what they have and that's what that team is built on. Running the ball, Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt They have one of the better offensive lines in the NFL. And if they, put this, do you give a contract extension to a quarterback who you think and say this about, well, as long as he doesn't make mistakes, we're going to win a lot of games. Is that who you want to give a $40 million contract to? I thought his immaturity was terrible coming into the league. I do think it's gotten a little better. And I saw a little bit of that leadership. And I always thought of him as a high school cheerleader. I did, just masquerading as a quarterback. You know, some of the BS stuff that he would do and how he acted, I just I, I started to get sold after week eight. All right, we'll talk a little bit more of that. But the other day, we had our friend Stephen Jones on, the CEO of the Dallas Cowboys, and I'll tell you something, man. He has a lot of energy, just like my next
6: friend, who I hear had a birthday a couple days ago. Am I right? Well, no, it's not. It was <laughs> It's actually, it actually was very nice of, of uh, Halby to tweet that out, and uh, then I had to tweet him back and say, thank you, David, but it's in August, same day. Definitely got a little bit. Because you know, Brad,
2: everything that's on the internet is true. You know what I mean, right? <laughs> 100%. 100%. <laughs> hey, hey, Brad, I, I brought you on here. and We were talking about the energy that's in the building, and, boy, Stephen just really feels fired up about the collection of cowboys that he has going into this 2021 season? You know, the camps out there, I heard, you know, if, if Dak had to play, he would be able to play a football game. How do you see and how how are you getting the temperature of this team as we get ready for the 2021 camp?
6: Well, first of all, uh, you've known Steven for a little while. Dan, have you ever known him not to have a lot of energy and optimism? No. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm glad he feels that way, but he always feels that way. Uh, there's definitely a um, renewed energy because of Dak's presence. He's an unusual leader. Where he'll finish ranking on the list of quarterbacks, his career will determine. And I think he's a good one, and, and how good will depend on a lot of things. But I can tell you right now that as a leader and a generator of positivity and teamwork uh, and all of those intangibles – uh, he he doesn't have any peers. He's he's just off the charts in those areas. And so when you get that guy back after you played two thirds of a season without him, and then you add to that that you've got Tyron Smith and Lyle Collins and Zach Martin back at practice, and Ezekiel uh, Elliott's running around uh, looking as good as he ever has, that helps generate a lot of positivity. And and no question. Everybody feeds off the energy. And then I think that um, they're all very impressed with Dan Quinn, uh, who's got a great uh, reputation and record, not just reputation, as, as a defensive coordinator. And um, there's reason for excitement for his being there to improve things, and he's got a lot to improve. Because they were really, really, really bad on defense last year, and he'll fix some of that, and some infusion of some new players will fix some of that. Um, it, will it be enough? That's why they're going to play the games.
2: You know, I, I'm going to I'm going to expand a little bit on what you said. I had, uh, you know, Dan Mullen on the head coach of Mississippi State back in the day when Dak was there, and I want to tell you a little story here, Brad. He's like this. They brought him in from his high school, and they had a camp, and he was like, this guy can't hit the broad side of a barn, and I don't know. His, his equipment manager and his team trainer came up to Dan and said, you got to sign this guy. You just got to sign this guy. And Dan goes like this, well, I wish he was a little more accurate. So what Dan did was he gave him a couple skill set things to work on. They brought him back, Brad. They couldn't believe how much he had grown just in that – six months and then they ended up giving him a scholarship and he couldn't believe how he kept growing and growing and growing. And so I have fallen in love with Dak through this whole process here. And the fact that I'm hearing all these people say, Man, it's one thing to love the kid's ability. It's another thing to love the kid because he's getting better and better and better, and people gravitate to him. Do you feel that way too?
6: Yeah, absolutely, and I'll give you a story to build on the one that Dan Mullen gave you. They drafted him in the fourth round. By the way, their second pick in the fourth round in 2016. So the first day of the first rookie camp, his mechanics were somewhat lacking and Jason Garrett was on him. Uh, hey, you got to do he, he didn't spend a lot of time under center at Mississippi State. So you got to do this. You got And there were things that he'd never. And Garrett has always said, forget about six months. By the end of that practice, he had assimilated everything that they were trying to get him to do. And by the next day, it was like he'd been doing it all his life. So that's the kind of learner he is, and, and then it, the rest of it is what he gets people to do. You know the old saying about the, the the real great players are the ones who make everyone around them better, and he's one of those.
2: You know, you know, Brad, I'd I, I love to hear that too, and as I mentioned, when we had Steven on the other day, I asked him, you know, we talked a little bit about the contract negotiation. They went and he said this to me, he goes, it was never about the money. He goes, it was always about the length of the contract. It was about, you know, you know, we wanted this amount of years. They wanted this. And when you're talking about being the face of a franchise, this is not, and I'm not throwing any shade on Jacksonville or Cleveland or any of these other places, but when you're the face of the Cowboys. Brad, if I had to put a, a, a blueprint together or a manual and how I wanted my young quarterbacks to act during contract negotiations as a face of a franchise, how he deals with teammates, how teammates see him, Prescott's your guy, man. I mean, he is the most visible guy in the world because the Cowboys are the most visible product in the world. And Steven said it. He goes, it was never. We always wanted him to be our face of our franchise. You subscribe to all that because there was a lot of media stuff out there that were saying the different of it. And you know how that goes because it's the Cowboys. They try to cut up everything.
6: Yeah, and it's, it's the media's job to prognosticate and pontificate, and that's um, useful when it's informed media, but national media frequently uh, just looks at what other people have written or said, and builds opinions off that. And everything that I ever heard and the way they acted in public convinced me completely that Stephen is telling you the truth. They knew what they were going to have to pay him. They're not dumb. I mean, you know, you they've made some bad decisions, and who hasn't? But as business people, they're pretty good. And, and uh, you know, sometimes it costs what it costs. You know, if you want that Porsche, like the one that's in your driveway, (laughs) uh, then this is what it costs. And if you try to get it for the price of a new Buick, then you won't get it. And so if you're happy driving a a brand new Buick and Buicks are great, but if what you really want is a Porsche, then you got to pay a Porsche price. So they, and I'm not saying he's a Porsche, but they knew what it was going to cost the the year before, if you just think about the year before, there was no way his agent was going to let him sign a contract in the off season before 20, before COVID, before we knew anything about COVID. You had a television contract being negotiated that was going to shake up the the structure of the salary cap. That was still up in the air. And you had contracts being negotiated with uh, Watson and Mahomes. And they were going to reset the market. And they did. And that was so, it's obvious to anyone who follows it. So in, you know, in about 10 minutes, Prescott's contract's going to look like a bargain because Lamar Jackson's going to set it and somebody else is going to set it and it's going to just keep on going up. That's what it cost. And When you look at all the intangibles that we've already talked about, now the guy's still got to be able to play. But he's individual statistics. He has already exceeded every possible expectation for a fourth-round draft choice. And he's proven himself to be one of the top competitors and quarterbacks in the league. I didn't say the best, but he's got room to grow. No one will work harder at it his career now is about whether he will succeed at those things, but did they want him all along? Yeah. You could tell that Washington didn't really want Kirk cousins. They weren't ever going to put that money into cousins. And so he um, kind of set a new parameter by what he did by leaving there and going to Minnesota. Dallas was never in that position with uh, Prescott. They always wanted him. They were always going to sign him. They, they knew what it was going to cost. They're in the business of trying to either keep the price down or, the, you know, the years was really is really important, especially if you go back a couple of years and put yourself in the position of someone running a team with an uncertainty about the TV contract and the salary cap, those things, those salary cap implications are what drive decisions, because the team has to think about not only what team am I going to put on the field right now, but how am I going to be competitive with my cap three years from now? So when you have a guy for an extra year on a contract, then you can move that money around and play with it and do more things. And that's why they wanted the extra year. It was never about the money. They were always going to pay him.
2: Let's go over to the defensive side of the football. You broached that a little bit here. And, you know, it's great that they ended up signing Dak to his contract and they're healthier in the offensive line. That does dictate keeping your defense off the field, why it matures. You know, I tell everybody this, Brad, if you've got a ball-controlled offense and you've got a running game and you've got an offensive line that can dictate time of possession, As your defense is coming along, especially with a new coordinator, especially with maybe new faces that are going to be on that side of the ball, it's so imperative that two things have to happen for the Cowboys this year. they got to be able to run the football. Dak's going to be there, but they've got to be able to run the football and control the clock. And if they can do that, do you feel a little bit more comfortable as that defense, I call it like the green apple on the tree, gets a chance to mature?
6: Well, I mean, there's certainly a great deal of truth to that. But there, there, there's a little more nuance. You know, before Dak got hurt, he and Elliott were turning the ball over at an absolutely unparalleled rate. So they were committing turnovers that was uncharacteristic of them, and they were putting a shaky defense in a horrible position. So that's the first thing. In addition to running the ball and controlling the clock, they got to stop turning it over. They cannot do what they did offensively last year in terms of coughing the ball up. Now that defense is almost certainly going to grow. They're looking at a lot of young players. They've brought in a few veterans who they think will uh, will be uh, helpful. Uh, uh, Brett Urban and and Keanu Neal and. Um, there's a lot of really young guys who are going to wind up playing a lot. So what if those guys occasionally take the ball away from the other team and put the offense in a better position to score that I don't think, I mean, I know there's new wrinkles and new rules every year. I don't think they've passed one that says the defense is not allowed to take the ball away. They have played like that for quite a while. And then they got a little better at it at the end of last year, but they, they, were, they, were, the, they were so dysfunctional defensively last year that it's best to just throw all of that out. Um, the defense can help immediately by taking the ball away a little bit, and the offense can help the defense by not turning it over the way it did even before Dak got hurt last year. Brad
2: hook me up here on Mike McCarthy. You know, we watch him up in Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers and you know, Green Bay's had two quarterbacks for 31 years, okay? Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers and I mean, you're not going to go too wrong when you've got guys like that. You 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 talk to him all the time. Is he the fit you think for this for this team and for for Jerry?
6: Here's the funny thing. I I don't talk to him all the time because huh. COVID Ah. made everything different. You can talk to anybody who does my job in the entire league. I didn't have an in-person meeting with Mike McCarthy at all last year, one-on-one, because when things shut down in March, everything was virtual. And uh, even the pregame segment that I do with him, which we tape a couple hours before the game, that was – Uh, on the phone or on a a hookup. It wasn't uh, face-to-face. So it would be disingenuous of me, Danny, to say that I really know Mike McCarthy. We certainly know his pedigree. We know what he accomplished, and you just talked about it, in Green Bay. And uh, because he did get fired, that brings on critics who say, yes, he won and he had those two quarterbacks. And other people say, yes, but he was a really important part of why they won. I will say this. There were a lot of very well-respected national commentators, former players uh, around the NFL who, when they hired him, said best guy they could get, absolutely best guy they could get. And and because of his reputation, because of what he's accomplished, he he is – he did last year, and I think this year again, he'll be able to do whatever he wants. I mean, he could draft the players. He could tell them, don't draft that guy. I want that guy. I don't know if he did that, but he could do it. He could decide, you know, which players to sign and how to play them. And uh, now, you know, 6 and 10 will lose you some of that shine. and uh, even under the unusual circumstances they were operating under last year. And so they have to be better than that. They have to be competitive. Um, You can never really account for injuries, but everybody's got injuries in this league. You have to have your team prepared to compete. Now, I I would submit to you that when you start four quarterbacks over the course of the season, this has certainly been my experience. I haven't seen every game the Cowboys have ever played. This is only my 43rd year. My experience is when you have a year where you start four different quarterbacks, not a good year. So <laughs> that, that will, that'll take things away from how efficient and it, and it affects both ends of the field. Cause if you, if you're three and out and you can't get any field position, the defense is playing with, you know, that they're playing with a long field all day. Um, all of that happened last year. So you almost have to give him a clean slate, uh, now that defensive, the the defensive coaching changes they made those had to happen, because you can everybody can have a bad year. You don't have to be great every year. You can't be the worst that the franchise has ever been. And in some defensive categories, including points allowed, which is a fairly important one, uh, that's that's what they were last year. So he made the changes that he had to make. But I think he still got a very long leash, um, and and he also. Uh, will be under more scrutiny without question. I wouldn't say hot seat. I don't know if I agree with that. But I think it's fair to say that he'll be under more scrutiny because of how his first year went. And what I know of him, I don't think he's got any problem with that. I, I, I think he, you know, he's a real down-to-earth guy. He understands life. He understands football. He understands the NFL. And, and I don't think he's got any problem with expectations being high on him.
2: Two last questions for you. Well, welcome to Dallas. I mean, Dallas Cowboy fans. If you're not in the Super Bowl, then you're not twelve and four every year. It's a sorry ass
6: year. I mean, <laughs> yeah, if you're twelve and four and lose your first playoff game, then they they they, they they're going to burn your house down. Absolutely. Let me throw this at you too. Is this?
2: Give me give me a sense of of Jerry and Stephen and the organization. I had Wade Phillips on with us a couple of uh, weeks ago, and I asked Wade, "Did you enjoy working for?" For Jerry and Steven, he goes, I loved it. They treat you like family. They bring you into their family. They talk to you like family. You go to picnics with them. They talk to you. What do you need? Is there anything we can help? And when you hear people say that Jerry gets in the way, and you hear coaches that have been in that building, and I've said this to you before, Jimmy Johnson told me this years ago, what was your biggest regret in Dallas? He said that I didn't let Jerry play with his toy more. And he said that he didn't let Jerry be you know, involved even more than he wanted to be. It was a big regret, and it became a divide because he was trying to do the things that he did with these other coaches. All that stuff's media made, isn't it, Brad,
6: that well, I, Jerry's I think, there for the coach? Yeah, I think a lot of it. Well, yeah, I think – I mean, and you, what, what Wade told you, you could get – I predict you would get the same answer from uh, Chan Gailey and Dave Campo and Jason Garrett, and any of the coaches that Jerry ha- fired after he hired them. He never he doesn't hire a guy to fire him. He hires him to be there forever. And uh, he's, he's extremely loyal to, to those coaches that he hires. I do think the biggest misnomer is, is that Jerry meddles. Jerry doesn't meddle. Jerry's biggest problem is that whoever talks to him last has got his ear. Uh, but Jer- Jerry – Look, he owns the team and he is the general manager, but he is not going in there saying we're playing this guy and we're trading that guy. Now he may want to know why he may sit down in a meeting and say, tell me why that guy's not contributing more. Tell me why our defense is so bad, but he's asking the questions that you have to ask. Even when things are going well, you know, you played at the highest levels Disaster's right around the corner. That's what Parcells used to say that all the time, and I think it's true in football. <laughs> Disaster is right around the corner. So you have to work all the time to preemptively get out in front of it. But Stephen Jones and, and uh, the personnel staff, they do a lot of the heavy lifting. Jerry's got to sign off on it. Jerry will sometimes make his suggestions. But Jerry doesn't get in the coach's way. Um, Babe Loffenberg, my broadcast partner, always reminds me that when he played for Joe Gibbs in Washington, Gibbs used to tell him every year, uh, I don't cut anybody. You cut yourselves. And I think that um, Jerry's, Jerry's high profile, the biggest problem a coach might have from Jerry is not what Jerry is telling the guy to do behind the scenes. Uh, Jerry is high profile. He likes being high profile. He's the only owner and general manager that I know of who goes outside the locker room, at least in the before times when reporters were allowed in there, who knows what will happen this year uh, that, when the game is over he comes out of the locker room and the biggest media crowd is around him so now he's going to say something which is going to generate more questions from the media hey coach jerry said this so i'll bet you that most of the coach most of the coaches who have played for him would probably say it wouldn't hurt my feelings if he didn't have that all the time if he didn't have his radio show once or twice a week that steven does too that everybody listens to and then questions coming. Wouldn't hurt my feelings if he didn't do that. I'm sure every coach would tell you that, but every coach worth his salt also wants to be in charge of everything. And there's a, it's a business hierarchy. So he, he could be less visible, but he's not, he is a, he's the biggest supporter that his coach has, whoever that coach is. I guarantee you that.
2: Finally here, you know, I, I, I thought it was a touching moment and you know, my, my love for coach Jimmy Johnson. I thought it was awesome watching Troy break down and get emotional as Jimmy was going to get the message that he was going into the hall of fame. He's going into the hall of fame because he's a Dallas Cowboy coach, not because he's a Miami Dolphin coach, not because he's an NFL broadcaster It's because he's a Dallas Cowboy coach. And he won, and he won, and he won, and he set things up with Jerry. Yeah. And it was a perfect dynamic. I just wonder how the organization feels about Jimmy going into the Hall of Fame this summer?
6: Oh, I think they think it's great. Uh, First of all, for the very reason you just said, um, they're not going to be able to talk about Jimmy going into the Hall of Fame. Jimmy's not going to be able to give his speech without talking about the Cowboys. And so that's, that's really, for them, the name of the game. There are people who think that Jimmy and Jerry don't get along. And there certainly have been times when there's been a little frost on the relationship, but um, I can guarantee you, you know, the two Cowboy players who are going in are guys who didn't play for Jerry, but Cliff Harris and Drew Pearson. But uh, Jerry is thrilled that they are going in, even though he has no emotional tie. Now, Drew has done some stuff with him the last couple of years, but they don't have any emotional ties, uh, any parochial ties to Drew and Cliff. And they're thrilled for them and for the Cowboys franchise that um, those guys are going to the Hall of Fame and they feel the exact same way about Jimmy.
2: I can't wait, man. I can't wait for this season. Brad, thank you so much for taking time with me, my friend. Hey, I will wish you a happy birthday in August. Is that right? That's right. In August. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, Danny.
6: Good to see you.
2: You got it, man. That's my friend, Brad Sham. Over 40 years, broadcast partner there with the Dallas Cowboys. We'll take a brief time out. You keep it right here on the National Football Show.
3: I get scared sometimes. Of a lot of things. Joining in. Decisions. The dark. The dark. But I once heard someone say. But as I always say. It's okay to be afraid. As long as you face the fear. And keep moving forward. It's the door to a world most people only dream of. There's strong, and then there's Army strong. Try it on at GoArmy.com.
2: Welcome back to the National Football Show. Your boy, Dan Solio. Thank Brad Sham for coming aboard. By the way, tomorrow's guest. We will have the head football coach of the Arizona Wildcats. By the way, guess what we're trying to do? We're trying to get him to talk Gronk on the coming on the national football show. Gronk's an Arizona Wildcat guy. Get this. Gronk was the head coach for the spring game, and they did some helicopter drop. I guess he broke a Guinness World Record for, like, the – like the longest catch or something. They dropped that out of a helicopter and he caught it. So we'll talk to our friend. By the way, Jed Fish was the offensive coordinator along with Josh McDaniel last year. I think he was a quarterback coach. I'll take that back of the new England Patriots. So we'll get Jed's thoughts. First year head football coach of the Arizona Wildcats. So we'll talk to him and our friend, Jason Cole. I just found this, you know, I don't know if you guys know, see, you know, this is a bar. This is the Big Sills bar here that we do the national football show from. I got my my whole thing here. And I've got all kinds of sports memorabilia. Now, the stuff behind me is all like most of the stuff is mine, right? And I just found this. I don't know if you guys can see this. Okay, so, like, this is a Golden Glove little trophy that's given to, like, the guys who win the Golden Glove in Major League Baseball. I never noticed this. So I got a whole bunch of this stuff, like, around here. Hold on here. Oh, yeah. I've got an Ozzie Guillen baseball signed by Ozzie Guillen when he was manager of the, I think, the Marlins at the time. So I got a whole bunch of this stuff. I never realized that Evan Longoria had actually signed this thing for me when I was broadcasting in Tampa, if you can see it. He signed the bottom of this bad puppy here. I think he's with the Giants now. You just never know what you find. I've got so much garbage. I'm one of these guys that that just collects all this stuff. Or actually, you know what? I really don't collect it. People like give it to me. Um, Ted Williams, years and years ago, when I was in Tampa, I have no idea why the tie-in for the Hall of Fame um is the Ted Williams Hall of Fame is in the Tropicana field, Ted Williams threw me three baseballs signed by him. And I've got three baseballs signed by Ted Williams. And I'm like, okay, sure. I'll keep. and I've got those baseballs. I've got a whole bunch of stuff. And again, people give me this here. I got one of my, Oh my God, you'll love this. One of my favorite Phillies of all time. Look who signed this for me here. Let me lift it up. Dick Allen the legendary Dick Allen signed this. And he was rookie of the year, but I don't think he was with the uh, Phillies down. I think he was with the Dodgers. Oh God. Dick Allen and I were dear friends. And oh, I love that guy. He gave me the, he goes, Hey Sills, I hear you're a big fan. Yeah, man, I'm a fan of yours. You know, I am. Yeah. You know, I love the guy, man. So yeah, no, no, I, I just, I'm I'm sitting here as we're coming back from timeout. I'm like, did Evan LaGuardia really sign this gold glove thing here for me? Sure enough, he did. Crazy. I, I guess it's, it's some of the perks that you get when you do this for such a long period of time. I've been in this business now going on 27 years. So pretty cool. Anyway, it was pretty interesting to hear How Brad looks at the Cowboys. There's no question. The Cowboys' success is going to come down to this. It's not so much whether or not Dak is going to be a guy that could carry the mail for the Cowboys. I believe we all think he's one of the top 15 quarterbacks in the league. It's going to be really on the health of the offensive line and whether or not they could stop folks. It's funny, huh? Nothing has really changed since the league started in 1920. If you can run the ball, you can win. If you could stop the run, you're going to win. Those two dynamics really do not change. And if you can do both of those dynamics, You've got one of the better teams in the National Football League. All right. want to thank my boy, Krause, as always, man, for setting it up, getting people rocking and rolling. Cal, you do a great job at posting all of our stuff. Don't forget, go over to my social media page, too, at the Ancelio Show. You can see a lot of those things there that we give you insights on some of the things that people say on the program. You can also go to the Jacob Media channel, in case you missed any of the show. You can like it and share it. We really appreciate it. Four to six, man. Till then, we shall see you on the flip side.